thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Good morning, church family. It is good to see you, good to be with you. If you're new with us, my name is James Forsyth. I serve as senior pastor here, and it's my privilege week by week to spend time with you in God's word as together we seek out help and hope for, for our lives. Um, what did you make of the passage that was just read? How many of you paid attention to the whole thing? Okay, good work. I, I know many of us probably were like listening, uh, paying attention to the word of the Lord, and then suddenly find ourselves thinking about what we needed to get from Kroger later, and then we're listening again, and then we're thinking about last night's game, and then we were listening again, and yeah, kind of one of those passages that, that ebbs, ebbs and flows. What sense are we to make of it? Well, let's, let's go to God and ask him to help us. Father, we are thankful for your word. Every single bit of it is uh, true and given to us because you love us. And so we pray that you would speak to us through this passage this morning and that we would find help and hope, both for this life and even, Lord, for the next. We're grateful that you're with us. This morning, your heart toward us is love. You are tender, you are compassionate. You're, you're looking down in this room, Lord, and you're, you're pleased with your children. So come, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's one way to think about this passage. Um, as, a, as a father, I say to all of my children, and if I'm honest, probably particularly to, to my boys, that they should go out and make some bold new mistakes. Bold new mistakes. Go out without a spirit of fear and attack your life. And don't think that the worst thing that can happen is for you to get something wrong. Because do you know what? We all get things wrong. You'll survive. You'll be okay. Go out and make some bold new mistakes. But as you do that, um, try and avoid the stupid old mistakes. You know the stupid old mistakes? Um, don't have a reckless spirit where you go out and do a bunch of stuff that's failed every single time it's ever been tried before. You know the kind of thing I mean. It, it starts when they're little. Um, touch the hot plate, guess what happens? You will get burned. Off into school, um, show up for class and study, otherwise, guess what will happen? You will fail your exams. A little later on, don't drink too much, you will be hungover. Dear ones, you don't need to do your own personal research on this. The studies have been done, the results are in. And I think there is a sense in which our Heavenly Father feels a similar way about us, which is why he gives us the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an opportunity to learn from the experience of others. An opportunity to learn from the experience of others so that we can go and, and make the most of life by living as God has designed Living as, as God has designed. In, in a word, the Bible calls this wisdom. Wisdom. 
practical truth that we learn from others that we can apply it to our lives. And Ecclesiastes, this book that we've been journeying through, is part of the the wisdom literature in the Bible along with Psalms and Proverbs and the like. In fact, when we read it, didn't it read like a chapter of Proverbs? We could have been in a, a chapter of, of, of Proverbs because that's really what this, what this chapter in Ecclesiastes is. The preacher takes a break from his kind of high-level philosophizing and pondering and chewing in order to, to, to bombard us, really, with, with a series of Proverbs. They're wide-ranging. They attack us from a number of different angles. And so I'm not going to try and force them into three points this morning. Instead, we're going to enjoy our way through as many of them as we can, before noting at the end how how we can only really apply these to our lives through our Savior, Jesus. Okay, you ready? Let's dive in, enjoy as many of these Proverbs as we can. Why not make the first one from the first verse, Proverb number one, a good name is better than precious ointment. You want some wisdom for your life? Well, a good name is better than precious ointment. So perfume will make you smell good on the outside, but the Bible says it's better to smell good on the inside. There's no point looking a million dollars if your name makes people sigh. What happens when your name is brought up at a function, when your name is brought up at a party? Don't let your adorning be external. Instead, make it internal. Don't let people say of you or remember you and say, wow, they always looked so good. Instead, let people remember you. Let them say of you, wow, he, she, they they had a beautiful heart. Character, according to the Bible, is more important than appearance. Character, more important than appearance. Now, isn't this one of those things like last week that we all know to be true and yet often forget it? If we remembered it, how, how can we all spend more time getting ready in the morning than we do spend time with the Lord? Maybe that's a good takeaway for us. Don't get ready in the morning until you've spent time with the Lord. Proverb number one. Well, let's dive into verses two and three, where we read that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting, and that sorrow is better than laughter. Now, this doesn't sound right. It certainly doesn't sound fun. But again, um, can't we see the wisdom in it? Um, Where will you learn more? Um, At a funeral or at a party? Which one will be better for you? Which one will make you more uh, into the person that you actually want to be? Do you think it does your soul more good to drink a cup of coffee in our cemetery or to drink another beer at a party? Now, friends, in my life, I have done both. And I actually make it a regular habit now to take my morning cup of coffee to our cemetery, which is two minutes from our church. Walk around, see the graves, see the names, see the dates. Remember, I'm dust and ashes, but in the very remembering, it helps me It helps me to be a better husband. It helps me to be a better father. It helps me to be a better pastor. It does good things for me today. We all learn more at a funeral in a cemetery than we do at a party. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. If you feel like right now you are in the house of mourning, if you feel like you're in a season of of sorrow, um, remember that in that the Lord is is at work. 
Alistair Begg says, more spiritual progress will be made through failure, disappointment, and tears than will be discovered as a result of success, laughter, and easy times. You're in a struggle. The Lord is with you in that struggle, and he might just be doing something beautiful in your heart. Okay, that's the second one. Let's dive into verse five, which kind of continues this theme that hard things are better than easy things, where we read that it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. It's better to have friends who tell you the truth than it is to have a bunch of buddies who egg you on. It's better to have people who who tell you the truth and will will call you out when, when you need it. Now, I experienced this myself personally this week uh, with Andrew Kiesling and Tori McMurray. The three of us make up the executive team of our church where we were on a, a trip together. And while we were on this trip, it was very clear to me, I, I was handling a personal situation with a friend. I was, I was handling it badly. And you know, most annoyingly, I knew I was handling it badly. So, so I took this situation to them. Oh, there's Andrew sitting up there. I took this situation and I showed them the text exchange I was having with, with this friend. And um, you know, they didn't just agree with me and pile on. In fact, they, they, they told me to handle it differently. It was really annoying. Like, no, just be on my side. Tell me I'm right. Let me be self-righteous, you know. Forget growth in Christ, you know. That, that's what I was feeling. But you, see, you see how you need that? I did handle it differently. I can't tell you that like the clouds parted and the kingdom of God came, but I can tell you that I felt better for it. Um, and we all need that. We need friends who tell us the truth. Don't just tell us what it is we want to hear. Friends, here's a really good takeaway on the, from this proverb. Um, when you need advice... Don't just go to people who'll agree with you. Don't just go to people you know will agree with you. And isn't that a temptation? You know, in the Christian community, we know we know we need community. We know we should get wise counsel. So we go and find someone who will give us the wise counsel that just so happens to agree with what we already thought. No, go seek other people out. Have a have a multi. There, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, and particularly seek out those who you know will love you enough to speak the truth. Okay, verses seven through nine, the tone changes a little bit. And I guess the theme of these verses would be that it's wise to play the long game. Wise to play the long game. So verse seven, don't be so in love with money that you can be bought. Verse eight, when a project is difficult, finish what you start. Verse nine, uh, when you are angry, be careful not to let anger lodge in your heart. And this is a long game because the, op- the alternatives, getting money now, taking the easy route, enjoying the rush of anger, all have a, an immediate appeal. They all feel good right now in the moment, and yet none of us actually take us where we want to go. None of us end up getting to that place that we really want to go. Instead, we should play the long game. Integrity, patience, forgiveness. This is the better life. This will form us into people who are more like Christ. And so here's a very practical takeaway from this proverb. Um, Make decisions that you'll be pleased with later. Make decisions now that you'll be pleased with later. 
You know how there's sometimes those things that happen um, and you look back on your past, you know, future you is upset with the decisions that past you made, right? And, and the Bible would say, yeah, make decisions that future you is gonna be proud of. Make decisions that future you is gonna be glad that you have made. Rolling along, if you're uh, not paying attention, time to elbow your neighbor. Let's get everyone back in the boat here as we move to verse 10, which is an absolute classic and one that's often needed in the life of the church. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Everyone over 30, memorize this verse immediately. Okay. Ah, the good old days. Do you remember them? Weren't they great? Do you know it was sunny every day? Never rained, yet always rainbows in the sky. <laughs> it was joy and ease and, and everything was lovely. Uh, this nostalgic view of life where you find yourself longing for some version of yesterday. And you know, churches attract this way of thinking often more than in any other place. I'm so thankful that there's not a whole lot of that here at Cedar Springs, especially um, you know, our, our older members. Our older members show us and lead the way in, in knowing that the kingdom of God is always moving forward. So don't spend your time wishing it were yesterday. And that's such a, a good thing because uh, as Derek Kidner, one commentator, points out, there's really a, a double folly, a double whammy in, 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 in wishing it were yesterday. The first one is, is this, simply that you know the good old days weren't as good as you're remembering. When we get nostalgic, we, we tend to forget all the grievances, all the annoyances, all the frustrations and difficulties that were a part of that generation just as much as they're a part of this generation and every generation. And hasn't Ecclesiastes taught us that? Remember verse 9 of chapter 1? What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. The good old days weren't, weren't as good as we might think. But secondly, and maybe this is an even more dangerous folly, wishing it were yesterday can often be used as an excuse not to take action today. You know the people who are most engaged with their families, with their communities, with the kingdom of God? are not people who are sitting around wishing it were yesterday. It can become an excuse for us to be inactive, to be lazy in the present, because we're always bemoaning the fact that life has dealt us the hand that it has dealt. But here's the fact, friends, life deals us the hand that it deals us. And very often, we don't get much of a say in it. And, and what we need to do is roll up our sleeves and get on with it. The Bible says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So this is the day the Lord has made. And you can't rejoice and be glad in yesterday because it's gone. And you can't rejoice and be glad in tomorrow because it's not here yet. The only day that you can rejoice and be glad in is this day. And so we follow the Lord happily getting on with it. Now, verses 13 and 14 are so important because they're going to show us that we can do that because God is in control. Don't confuse this for some kind of... Um, you know, like a kind of stoic philosophy, like thing, it is what it is, might as well get on and make the most of it. Right? That, that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying we can make the most of today because God is in control of today. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God, whether the past seem crooked or straight. God, 
God is in control of it. And in light of that, verse 14, in a sense, this is a summary of the entire book. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Life is a gift. When things are going well, enjoy it. Make the most of it. And on the other hand, in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. So this is the day the Lord has made. He makes some good days. He makes some hard days. He makes some days full of celebration, one day, some days full of commiseration. And both of them come from him. He makes the one as much as he makes the other. And so don't be too discouraged when trouble comes. Don't think that that's somehow outside of his control. Here's the takeaway. Friends, there's a resilience in the Christian life that should lead us to expect hard things and expect to overcome them. Expect hard things and expect to overcome them. Expect hard things because God is going to make the good days and the hard days. And expect to overcome them because he's with you in both. (laughs) He's with you in both. Okay, verses 15 through 22. It's a larger section that I suppose gives us the the, the, the wisdom of perspective. Shows us there's a lot of wisdom in perspective. Verse 15, in my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. See the perspective the Bible's given us here? Um, Bad things do happen to good people. You need to know that. And good things do happen to bad people. You need to know that too. And so we might see innocents murdered in Israel while Putin dines on the finest fair in Russia. And we shouldn't be too confused by that because sometimes things aren't what they're meant to be. Sometimes things aren't what they're meant to be. We don't believe in a health and wealth gospel. Did you hear that referenced in our video a moment ago? Health and wealth gospel, which is unfortunately America's biggest theological export, that that teaches that um, if you are faithful to God, he will be faithful to you in the form of material blessing. If you, if you are good, the Lord will be good to you. If you are faithful, then what you will find is that he will bless you with health and with, with wealth. It's a crass form of legalism that somehow says, you know, um, be good enough and God will bless you, which means that if you're not being blessed, you're the problem. And the Bible says, foolishness, hevel. You know, you might find yourself, huh, faithful to the Lord and suffering in circumstance. And he's with you. And he's with you. So, verse 16. (laughs) If good things happen to bad people and vice versa, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. What do you think of that proverb? Did you ever think the Bible would tell you not to be too righteous? Like how... How is that even possible? Well, I suppose we could think of the Pharisees. Remember them in Jesus' day? Who were overly righteous? Who came up with more rules and regulations than the IRS? Overly righteous? Of course, we could think of some modern-day versions too. I had fun with this, actually, because I thought of a bunch of benign examples that no one would be offended by, and then I thought of a bunch of examples that I've actually heard in our church. Which ones do you want? 
<laughs> you know, you know which ones you're getting, right? Let's consider together what some overly righteous things might look like in our church. Um, how about when I hear there is no circumstance, no situation, no possible world where you should ever read Harry Potter to your children? Because that's witchcraft. That's magic. Having your children imagine things about magic, and I say, what about Narnia? Narnia is different. That's Christian magic. <laughs> there, there's Christian magic? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. There's so many things I didn't know. So many things I'm learning, right? <laughs> or how about this? Um, yeah, it's the time for it. There is no situation, no circumstance, no possible world where you should allow your kids to go trick-or-treating. They're going to dress up in like satanic gear and then go in some hedonistic, you know, pleasure pursuit of candy around the neighborhood. That definitely sounds like sin. Or you could turn the lights on, buy the biggest candy of anybody in the neighborhood and have kids love coming to your house. How about that plan? Or, um, here's one more, um, <laughs> and this will either hit or miss depending on what your church, you know, if you grew up, what church you kind of grew up in, um, but there is no possible world, no scenario, no situation ever in which you or your children or really anybody you should know should ever go dancing. Because dancing is physical, and so there's like straight line between dancing and sexual immorality, okay? You will not pass go, you will inevitably, and what about all the times they dance in the Bible? What about David who dances with all his might before, before the Lord? Now, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there probably are some books you shouldn't read. There are some costumes you shouldn't wear. There are some dances you shouldn't attend. But dear ones, work that out in your own conscience and be careful not to make your preference the universal rule for everyone. That's what it means to be overly righteous. You're taking your preference, and, and your preference in your conscience, you should follow before the Lord. You should. But be careful not to turn that into a rule that everybody else should follow. That's what it means to be overly righteous. Well, James, you're saying that like sin isn't that big a deal. No, that's not what I'm saying, because look at the very next verse. Don't be overly righteous, and then verse 17, don't be overly wicked. Isn't this good? Don't let the pendulum swing from one side to, to the other. <laughs> the solution to being a legalist, the solution to being a Pharisee, isn't to run out and sin as much as you can. I remember Paul who says, don't sin so that grace may abound. That's, that's, not, that's not how it works. Instead, look at verse 18, don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wicked. Instead, fear God. Fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We understand that in the Bible, this word fear, it doesn't quite mean what we would always mean by it, like terror or a phobia. It means a kind of reverence. It means a sense of awe. It means a sense of, of adoration and admiration for who God is and what God has done for us. See the Father who, who loves you, the maker of heaven and, and earth, and all that he's done for you in the gospel, and live your life in light of that. Live your life in light of that. Care a little less about what other people think. Care only about what God thinks. In fact, that point, don't care too much about what other people think, is made in verse 21, isn't it? Do not take to heart 
all the things that people say. Isn't that a good verse for our uh, age of outrage, for our social media-driven age? Don't take to heart all the things that people say. Hey, do you know, I love this verse because I, personally, I am not as good or as bad as people say. The truth, much more mediocre. And also, when you're tempted to take it to heart, remember verse 22. Your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that so practical? When you hear someone say something bad about you, when someone upsets your feelings, before you get too upset about it, before you get too irate, before you respond by being self-righteous or indignant, remember all the stupid things you've said about other people too, including the things you're thinking about the very person you just heard said something about you. It swings and roundabouts, okay? Just like the same thing happening again and again. So like, don't, don't be too caught up in this popularity game. Instead, verse 18, fear God. Dear ones, live, live for that audience of one. The Father who, who loves you, live for him. Live for him alone. Well, with this God-centered focus, our passage draws to a close in verses 23 through 29 by talking about the limitation of human wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Like we've just had 22 verses that talk to us about the importance of wisdom, and now we get this little section that tells us about the, the limits of wisdom. And it's strange in a sense, but it's also very like Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Like this thing is important, but don't think it's too important. This matters, but it's also heavy. You know, there's this tension that we have, to, we have to get our arms around when we're studying Ecclesiastes. Well, so we hear now about the limits of human wisdom. Yes, it's better to live a wise life, but remember, he says, that wisdom alone can never make you righteous. Can never make you righteous. Remember that you can be the best person that you can be, and you will still never be perfect. Verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Men, do you hear that? There's not a righteous man on earth. None of us are, I've got everything right. None of us is perfect. Worse than that, all of us have, have really got stuff wrong. Do you weigh that in your heart? Do you factor that into your thinking? Do you let it temper your reactions as you respond to the people in your life. Sisters, before you celebrate, look at verse 28. Yeah. There is not one upright woman among them all. <laughs> okay. Men, exhale, breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> it's not just us. <laughs> it's all of us. It's all of us. Men, women alike, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have messed things up in life. And so he concludes in verse 29, see this alone I found that God made humanity upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Takes us back to Genesis 1 through 3. You know there is a sense in which Genesis 4 through the end of the Bible is just an explanation of everything that happens in Genesis 1 through 3. The God who made us in his image, upright, righteous, holy, like he is. And yet Genesis 3, we've all fallen into many schemes. We've all done things we shouldn't have done. We've all left undone those things we should 
have done. All of us in different ways have made a mess. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says, live the best life you can and remember it will never make you perfect. It will never make you righteous. It can never take you back to Eden where you can live in, in, in perfection, perfection there. Now, in some senses, I suppose this seems like a strange place to stop, and I guess we need to remember that, that while this is how our passage ends, it's not where the teaching of the Bible ends. In fact, the, the ellipsis that this passage leads us, leaves us with really takes us deeper into the, the heart of the gospel by reminding us that huh, we need something bigger, we need something better, than practical wisdom for life. Here's the danger in a passage like this, and here's the danger sometimes that comes with studying the Bible. It's, on the one hand, really helpful to have a bunch of proverbs that if we live by them, will make us healthier and happier in life. Very helpful. The danger is we can start to think that that's what Christianity is about. Kind of like a glorified, sanctified self-help program where here's some wisdom to make your life better. Now, it is wisdom, and it will make your life better, but it's not what Christianity is all about. And we're being reminded of that, aren't we? Because we're being told that, yeah, do these things good, helpful, and still won't make you righteous. Still won't be enough for all of our foolishness. We need the wisdom of God, and we celebrate because that's exactly what we have in the gospel. The gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, 24, 1, 24, sorry. 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Remember? Christ is called the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the one who enters into our foolishness and who alone lives that perfect life. And isn't it a beautiful reminder, just like savor him for a second, how, how he fulfills all these proverbs? Like his good name is above every name and it's much better than precious ointment. He is the one who, who went to the house of mourning that in him we might celebrate and laugh. He's the one who played the long game on the cross. He doesn't take the easy way out. He's the one who doesn't long for farmer days but blazes ahead to make all things new and give us a fresh start. He is the work of God who used a, a crooked path a crooked cross to make things right. He is, don't you love this? There is no righteous man. There is no righteous woman. No, not one. Well, okay, there is one, and it's him. He is the righteous one who perishes in his righteousness that we might have life. He didn't seek out any scheme apart from giving us grace. Jesus enters the foolishness of our world, and he lives a life free from sin, and then, if you believe in him, he, he, he's the one who gives you this righteousness. He credits it to your account. What is your hope when you stand before God? Not that you got all these Proverbs right, but that he'll receive you as righteous because of your faith in Christ. Now, can we dwell on that for a second? Because this is sadly an often neglected gift of the gospel. Yes, in the gospel, God forgives your sins. But you know he does more than that? He doesn't just take your sin. He also gives you his righteousness. So think about it this way. Um, he doesn't just like, 
sort of pay off your debt so that now you're neutral before him at zero dollars. No, he, he forgives your sins, takes you to zero, and then credits you with Christ's righteousness into your own account. So that as God, see as God sees you just now, and dwell on this with me, friends, because it, it, <laughs> he doesn't just look down on you and see you just as if you'd never sinned. He looks down on you and is as pleased with you just as if you'd always obeyed. See the difference there? God doesn't look down saying, well, I've cleaned up your mess. Let's, let's see what your next move is. He looks down and he is pleased with you because he has credited all of Christ's righteousness to your account. You're beloved. You are secure. You are safe in his delight. And it's only with that faith in Christ that we start to apply these Proverbs to our lives. Let's make this more concrete. Invite you to do this one thing this week. Take one of these Proverbs. Which one stood out to you? Which one did you need to hear? Take one of them and memorize it by heart. And consider two things. First, how did Jesus fulfill this proverb for you? And how can you live it out in your life? How did Jesus fulfill this proverb for you? And how can you live it out in your life? Friends, at the very least, go and make some bold new mistakes. And don't make the stupid old mistakes that have been tried and and failed before. Take great joy in your Savior, Jesus, and live happily for God. Amen. Father, we do thank you for the the fullness of your word. We're struck by it again, Lord, how um, rich it is in help and hope. For, for our lives, and not just for our lives today, but for eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that you would spare us from any kind of legalistic understanding of these Proverbs, where we think like the goal now is to like, oh, gear ourselves up, go out and do better. But that instead, Lord, we would exhale into the beauty of the gospel, which tells us that Jesus has lived that perfect life for us. Uh, he has fulfilled all of these Proverbs. We are loved by him. All of his righteousness is credited to Uh, our account. We are your beloved sons and daughters with us. You are well pleased. And so because of that, Lord, and only because of that, we leave from here to, to live as you've designed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.